Well, I'd like you to use your imaginations this morning, at least for about two minutes, if you could. And I want you to imagine a woman who's in her mid-50s who, if you met her, you would really like her. She's warm, and she's kind, and she's good. And beyond that, even, she's a godly woman. And uh, she has been a wife for, for many, many years. She's a mother of three children. And I want you to imagine that one morning, her alarm clock goes off, and she gets up slowly. Her back is stiff and sore, and she puts on a sweatshirt, and she grabs a hot cup of tea and walks outside onto the porch swing that she has at the front of her house. And, and she does this routine that she's done ever since the children were little. And she has her Bible with her in her hand. And she sits down and she breathes in the morning air deeply. And it's a beautiful day. But for this woman, it's been a tough year. Uh, her daughter and uh, her son-in-law are missionaries in Central Asia. And they're far away, and she misses them every day. And sometimes she feels really anxious about their safety. Her youngest son seems to do, be doing fine, as far as she knows. But she's heartbroken about her oldest son. Uh, he has struggled with a gambling addiction for some time, and it has recently cost him his marriage. And on top of all of that, just a year ago, or excuse me, just a week ago, she found out that her husband has a tumor in his liver, but she doesn't know any more information about it than that. Now, this woman is a wise woman, and she knew that she would experience grief in life. I mean, she knew that being a Christian did not mean that everything that came her way would be easy and smooth. But this woman, as she sits there, she is crushed by what's going on with her son. And every time she thinks about the possibilities of this tumor, she can't hardly catch her breath. And though most people wouldn't know it because she's so warm and outgoing, she is feeling despair creeping into her life. And she's struggling with some questions that are honest, they're humble, but they're ones that only God can answer. Is this my fault? Have I done something wrong? Why are you allowing this? Are you judging me? I know, God, and I trust, she thinks, that you are good. But it just doesn't feel like you're being very good to me. Now, what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to consider that the passage that we're going to look at in Hebrews chapter 12 sheds a very bright light on some of that woman's questions. And I believe that what it's going to show us is that when God allows dark clouds and terrible storms to roll into our lives, that it is not evidence of an absence of his goodness. That in fact, as strange as it sounds, it is the very proof of it. I'm going to spend most of my focus this morning on verses 3 to 11, but it's really uh, important to understand the background and the context if you want to understand verses 3 and 11. So we're going to uh, begin with verses 1 through 3, and let's go back and, and read them again. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, the author here begins with kind of a, an illustration, and he says that living the Christian life is like running a race. You might think of it as an extreme marathon. It begins not on the day that you were born, but on the day that you were born again into the family of God, and it ends on the day of our earthly death and homecoming to heaven. Now, this is a race that only Christians run. And this passage is directed specifically to Christians. That is, those who have a relationship with God, not through any good that they've done, but through the good that Jesus did in his sacrificial death and resurrection for our sins. And so if you are here this morning and you are a Christian through Jesus' sacrifice, then God's talking to you directly through this passage. If you are not, there may still be some things that will apply to you in this passage, but, but um, I hope that it will be something that will help you to consider whether or not you want to begin a relationship with God because it's going to discuss some incredible benefits that the children of God have, okay? So this race that the author is talking about is not something that's just distinct to Christians who live now. It's, it's true for every Christian who has ever lived in history. They've all ran the same race before us as well. And this great cloud of witnesses that he mentions at the beginning are, are all of those who have gone before us. They've been witnesses to the Christian faith, witnesses to the goodness of God. And some of them are even described in chapter 11, the chapter just before. But now, the author says, it is your time and you are expected to run faithfully until the end. But the author warns us. He says there are two things that will hinder your race that you've got to set aside. The first thing he says is that we're told to set aside sin, which is like a siren call. It seeks to distract us and entice us and seduce us into just kind of dawdling around or even stop running altogether. And he says, secondly, is anything else in life that isn't necessarily sinful, but nevertheless weighs us down in a manner that slows or hinders our progress. And so anything that would dampen your love for God or diminish your love for others in this race should be cast aside so that you can, in whatever circumstances are put before you, run with endurance. Now, what does this tell us? Well, what this tells us is that God expects your effort. God expects your effort in life. Now, we are saved and brought into a relationship with God not through our own effort at all. We're rescued from our sins only by the effort of Jesus. But then, God once we've begun a relationship with them, he uses our effort uh, empowered by God's grace to impact the world around us. And so the Christian life, we're told here, calls us to take off our favorite pair of fuzzy slippers and to lace up our running shoes. And he says, with eyes on Jesus, we are to charge forward. Now God never promises us that this race is going to be easy. 
as we sometimes naively assume that it will be. In fact, what God promises is that it will be extremely difficult. And so hardships and trials, while they may sometimes discourage us, we've been told about them, so they should never surprise us. And while they may come up unexpectedly, they should never catch us unaware because we are told plainly and honestly by God that we will spend much of our lives, much of our race, struggling to lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely to us. The Bible says that endurance in life will not be optional, but it will be an everyday, sometimes every moment necessity. And this, at some times, Christians, God just admits here, is really discouraging to us. It's a long race. It's a hard race. But God is going to tell us here that we should never lose heart. And he's going to tell us why that is. He says, rather than losing heart, instead of that, when the going gets tough and you begin to feel weary in this race and faint-hearted, he says, there's something to do. He says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. And what he reminds us of is that Jesus, the very son of God himself, ran the same race that we are running. Now, Jesus ran that race perfectly. He actually succeeded in in setting aside every weight and in chopping off every sin that might have entangled. He renounced it all. And and his race was unlike any other in the sense that that he accomplished it, but was also uh, unlike any other in that he endured worse suffering than anyone else ever could. Uh, Jesus in the Bible is called the man of sorrows. He's a man who was familiar with suffering, Isaiah chapter 53 tells us. And Jesus' suffering culminated in the horrible, tragic, nightmarish day when his body was broken and his blood was spilled on the cross. But the author tells us that the terrible suffering of Jesus had a magnificent outcome. Because when Jesus died in our place for our sins, he delivered us from the clutches of death. And he made us the children of God. He gave us what the Old Testament might call hope and a future. And so all of us who are God's children should, with joy in our heart, celebrate the fact that for the joy set before him, which was our salvation, Jesus endured. He just kept running. He kept going. He despised the shame of the cross, and he ran on anyway. And this passage tells us, just look at Jesus now. He is seated in glory at the right hand of God the Father. And we're told to consider this. Consider is a mathematical term, by the way. It means that we're supposed to spend some time kind of analyzing this and and working this out. This is not meant to be just a momentary consideration. This is something that we ought to consider all of our lives. And one of the main points of this passage, verses 1 through 12, that we ought to consider is this, that though Jesus' suffering was heartbreaking, it had a spectacular result. And what we're going to see is that one of the main points of what comes next, verses 4 through 11, is God says that ours will too. 
that this cycle of suffering and then glory that Jesus experienced is similar to what God has in mind for us as well. That's good news. And that's what this section is about. Now, the Bible discusses suffering in many, many, many different places. It's hard to even uh, look at a page without seeing someone suffering someplace or, or some uh, discussion about suffering. This passage is one of many passages, and it's not meant to be kind of a one-size-fits-all passage, okay? This is just one piece of the puzzle when it comes to suffering. This passage is not meant to tell us everything that we need to know about suffering. There's other places in the Bible where we learn other things. But it does tell us something about suffering that God's children are meant to lean on and depend on and rest in as we face suffering. And basically what it tells us is this, that God is a good father, that a good father disciplines his children, and that In our discipline process, God uses, at least in part, our suffering. God's a good father. A good father disciplines his children. And in our process of being disciplined, one of the things that God uses is our suffering. Now, I want to just make something really clear. This does not mean that all suffering that we experience in life is because God is disciplining us, okay? It just means that whatever the cause of our suffering might be, God will use that that to discipline us. Okay, let let me flesh that out a little bit. In my opening illustration, God did not give... Uh, God did not give that woman's son a gambling addiction to discipline her, right? Okay? However... God can still use that gambling addiction to discipline her. Did you see the difference? No matter where the cause of the suffering comes from, God can still use it in our lives to discipline us. Now, what does that mean, to discipline us? Well, discipline in this passage carries two connotations to it, basically. It's both uh, considered education, which would be kind of a positive thing, and chastising, which would seem to be more of a negative word used for a positive effect. The two words that we might use today that might fit better our time period would be training and correction. You can think of discipline as God's training and correction. Now, at the time uh, uh, that this book was written, it was accepted that the disciplining of children was a responsibility that would fall to the fathers. And that's, this is not always true today. In fact, I read something recently from uh, Will Smith. He, he was writing about uh, how he and his wife parent their two, I think, teenage, I think they're teenage children, uh, Jaden and Willow. And this is what he said. He said, we don't do punishment. The way that we deal with our kids is they are responsible for their lives. Our concept is, as young as possible, give them as much control over their lives as possible, and the concept of punishment, our experience has been, it has been a little too much of a negative quality. So when they do things, and you know, Jaden, he's done things, you can do anything you want as long as you can explain to me why that was the right thing to do for your life. Okay? Now, this would not be the Bible's viewpoint. I mean, we can take a little good out of it. I think, I think we, can, we can see something that he's trying to do. But what the Bible assumes is that children are not yet mature enough and do not have sufficient experience to know what the right things are to do in life. And that's part of why God gives them parents, and that's also part of why God tells them to obey their parents. 
And parental discipline, biblical parental discipline, is meant to be a positive thing that trains and corrects children so that maturity and experience can be developed within the safety and security and protection of the family before they head out into the much larger and more dangerous world to begin making their own decisions. And so what discipline is meant to do is it's meant to save a young person from the pain and the harm that would be caused both in their own lives and potentially in the lives of other people if they are just left on their own to figure out things the hard way. And so what this passage tells us is that this kind of training and correction in our lives is God's good parenting work for us. God takes this challenge on with you and me, and that no matter why it is that we're suffering, God uses our suffering to discipline us. Now, I want to just break this next section down um, three ways. We're going to look at three aspects of God's uh, discipline for us. And the first is, we're going to think about the attitude towards God's discipline that we should have. How should we feel about the fact that God disciplines us? How should we respond? What should we do? Number two, the attitude towards God's discipline that God has. How does God himself feel about this process of discipline that he's working out in all of his children's life? And finally, the outcome of God's discipline that we should expect, right? Why is God disciplining us in the first place? So first of all, I want to talk about the attitude towards God's discipline that God tells us that we should have. And he starts out uh, very early in this section by telling us exactly that. You find it in verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? He, he's going to point back to a proverb, by the way. That's, that's what I, I'm about to read in the rest of verse 5 and into verse 6. He says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Our attitude when we are disciplined is that we should not regard it lightly. We should never regard the fact that God disciplines us as his children lightly. Never take it for granted. I don't, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I think for most people it's true that there tends to be kind of a cause-effect relationship between our suffering and our faith. And the cause-effect relationship for most people is that the heavier, excuse me, that the larger our suffering grows, the more our faith tends to shrink. You ever notice that? And that the heavier our trials become, the lighter it feels like God is involved with us. When we suffer, sometimes it feels like God is not being good to us at all, and we struggle with the fact of whether or not that's true. Is God good? What verse 5 does is it commands us that in whatever circumstances we face in life, no matter how hard or discouraging they are, not to be tempted to think that God is in some way indifferent to us, not to be tempted to believe that God is not wholly committed to our training and correction. And he tells us here to trust that God will never take his job as your heavenly father lightly. He won't do it. So what does this mean? Well, I guess if you put it in the most simple terms, it means that in our darkest moments, 
God promises that he is doing something good. We may not be able to see it. We may not be able to understand it. We may not be able to make any sense of it at all. But it says here, we shouldn't take it lightly. Because God takes his role as our father with the utmost gravity. And we can trust that because of that, our suffering will never be wasted. It will never have been useless because God, as our Father, is committed to us and he will mature us. Have you ever known a person that you loved very much? Maybe it was a kid or someone else that you were uh, close to and you noticed in their life that they had a problem that they couldn't seem to see. But you knew that that problem was going to cost them. It was going to cause them harm as it developed and grew, and it may have caused harm to people who interacted with that person in the future. And so you sat them down and you said, listen, I'm really, really concerned about this for you. And and they kind of listened and nod their heads, but you just didn't feel like in the conversation you were really getting through to them. And then they they went away and, and kind of nothing changed and maybe it even got a little worse. And you met with them again and the same sort of thing happened. And, and pretty soon what you realized was, I care more about this problem than they do. This is bothering me. It's keeping me up at night. I bet you they sleep like a baby and they're the ones with the issue. I'm serious about this, but they're not. Well, in the same way, at least in a similar way, what God is saying here is that God is serious about growing us up. And he says, so we ought to be serious about that too. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And what that means is that we we are going through struggles and difficulties that we recognize that even if nothing else good comes out of this, at least God can use this for good inside of me. And we earnestly ask God, God, please use this to teach me what you want to teach me, to show me what you want to show me. Please help me to go along with you in this process that you're working in my life, not to work against you. God, thank you that even though this is horrible, that you can use this as an opportunity for me in some painful way to become more like you. I, I'm not going to take this lightly. I believe that you're going to do good. That's what I believe that passage tells us to do. That ought to be our attitude as we, we face suffering. Secondly, we're told here the attitude towards God's discipline that God has. Okay, so what's God's attitude as he disciplines us? Is he angry? Is he mad? For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. God's attitude towards disciplining us is basically, how can I not? How can I possibly call myself a father? How can I use that term and not discipline my kids? How can I not? 
I was uh, in a store, this is many, many years ago, um, doing a little bit of shopping. I think it was probably a Meyer. And in the aisle, I found myself alone with a little uh, eight or nine-year-old girl. I, I didn't know where her parents were. But um, she was standing there, and she had a goldfish in a little fish bag that she'd apparently purchased. And it was a pretty big-sized goldfish. And I was kind of looking at what I needed to look at. And I looked over, and I noticed that she was squeezing the bag as hard as she could. And the fish was kind of like this. And literally, the, the eyeballs were starting to pop out in, in, the fish's, in the fish's face. And I was kind of watching to see if she would stop doing it, and she didn't. So I, I walked over, and I said, hey, I said, you really shouldn't do that. I said, you're going to end up killing that fish. And she just looked up at me, and she smiled this sort of evil grin, and she kept <laughs> squeezing it. And so I said it again. I said, you're going to, to kill that fish. You really need to stop doing that. And she looked at me, and I'm not kidding. She said, I will stop if you buy me a Barbie, she said. <laughs> this was like a hostage negotiation, basically. <laughs> All right, now, obviously I didn't buy her the Barbie, okay? But... What if, this part didn't happen, but what if I had, had, had taken her and I took her over and I found her mother somehow and I took her to her mother and I said, listen, you need to know what this girl has done. First of all, she's about to kill this fish and second of all, she's using it to try to get a Barbie. And what if the mother looked at me in the eye and she considered it and she said to me, well, are you going to buy her the Barbie? <laughs> no? All right, squeeze it harder, honey. Come on, keep going, Right? If the mother did that, she would be worse than the daughter, wouldn't she? Any parent who ignores the wrongdoing in their children is a negligent one. And any child who is not disciplined by their parents is effectively, this passage says, an illegitimate one because there is an inseparable connection between parenting and discipline. Part of the very fabric and definition of being a mother or a father is taking on that parental responsibility to train and correct your child. And here we're told that God accepts that same responsibility for us. And so when God allows us to face discipline, when he teaches us through it and corrects us through it, it is not, according to this, evidence in any way that God is bad. It is proof this would tell us that he's good. It is not in any way evidence that he hates us. It is in every way evidence that he loves us. It is not evidence that he is indifferent and uninvolved in our lives. It is proof this would say that God is a good father. By definition, any child who does not receive discipline from their parent is effectively unloved. But any child who does is being treated as a precious and beloved son or daughter. And if today you are struggling with suffering of some kind and you're facing those doubts that we're talking about this morning, I mean, like your mind knows that God is good, but your heart just isn't into it right now. You're, you're struggling to believe that. I've been really praying all week for you that this passage would speak to that. And in particular, that verse 6 
would be of particular comfort to you. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The fact that you are struggling is proof that God loves you. It is proof that he is receiving you. It's proof, he would say, that he is involved. We live in a world that's, that's, that's fatherless in many ways. And yet God comes to you in your struggle as your father who loves you more than anyone else ever would and ever could. That he loves you with his eternal love. And that, that the discipline, the thing that, that you're facing, even though it's hard, even though you don't want it, it's proof of that. God is up to something good, even if we can't see it. And that brings us to the last part today. And that is the outcome of God's discipline that we ought to expect to see in our lives. What is the good work of God's discipline and what is it intended to do? And we'll close out this section with verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Okay, so what do we learn here? Well, what we learn here is something important to know about God. That God is absolutely intent and committed to conforming us to his character for his glory and for our joy. What it means is that God disciplines us perfectly. He disciplines us for our ultimate good so that we can be holy like him. He wants us to share in his holiness. And, and discipline is an important part of that process. I, uh, I really like what one writer said, and, and uh, I think it's so true sometimes. He said, no matter how long we hold out, no matter how hard our hearts, no matter how much we raise a fist at God, he will have his way with us. And God uses discipline in our lives to have his way with us, to make us like him. Now, the process of discipline, as any parent knows, is rarely pretty, right? <laughs> How many of you have ever had fun disciplining your, your, your children? Don't raise your hand because we're calling social services, <laughs> right? It's rarely pretty. It's rarely pleasant. But we do it because our kids are worth it, aren't they? And for some mysterious reason, we are worth it to God, too. How much less pleasant would it be to discipline ourselves, right? But what God is committed to in our lives is to making us better and stronger and godlier and more useful to his purposes. He wants to improve us, to perfect us, to mature us, and to humble us. And God knows something about suffering. And that is that if God were to dismiss all of our suffering in life, if he himself were to just cast away for us every weight that we're told to lay aside in the passage earlier, if he just did it himself, 
And if God himself for us were to just cut off every entangling sin so that we didn't have to be bothered with it ourselves, then God knows that the growth that he intends for us would never take root. Because the only way that we get stronger is to lift things that are heavy. And the only way that we gain maturity is to be tested in life and to withstand. And the only way that we become like Jesus, the Bible says, is to enter into his sufferings. And so what he says here is endure. Verse 7, for the sake of discipline, endure. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. For that reason, endure. It will have its good effect. Do not grow weary when God is disciplining you because he is, something, he is up to something good for your future benefit. And what's true is sometimes we don't notice it until the future, right? Can you look back over your life and and see the way that suffering disciplined you and say, thank you, God. Would have never thanked you at the time, but I do now. Thank you for the the, the fruit that that has produced. Thank you that that played a part in shaping me into who I am now and showing me things that I needed to show, that I needed to learn. Thank you. There was a a man who's unknown who... um, fought in the Confederate, on the Confederate side in the uh, Civil War. And he penned these words that I think really reflect that, that spirit of recognizing what God has done only later. And he wrote this. He says, I asked for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do greater things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need of God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing that I had asked for, but everything that I had hoped for. Almost despite myself, my unspoken prayers were answered. I am among all men, most richly blessed. And when we get to the end process of God's discipline in our lives, that's what we should be able to say, too. Now, I want to conclude by asking you this question. Do you believe that God is good? I don't just mean that in a general sense that really just about anyone would agree with. Uh, Not just God is good because he made this wonderful world with sunsets and puppies and ice cream cones. Not just that God is good because I live in a nice house and I've got enough to eat and I've got a hot date on Saturday night. I mean this. Do you believe that God is good without fail? Do you believe that God is good even when he allows the darkest clouds and the most menacing storms to roll into your life? Do you believe that God is good even when you cannot make sense of anything? Even when you don't feel his goodness in any way? Even when life stings and it's unfair and it's too much? Do you believe that God 
is a good father. And that God loves you with the fullest extent of his eternal love. And that no matter what may come in your life, that he is and will always be good. That's what this text wants to convince us of. May we believe it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Sometimes your goodness to us is is shocking because we don't deserve it. We haven't earned it. We haven't really honored you often in life the way that we ought to. But we thank you that you can apply your perfect goodness to us, your perfect love and acceptance and approval because Jesus ran our race to earn it for us. Thank you that he canceled out any sin that we ought to have to face judgment for. Thank you that he cancels out any reason that we ought to deserve your punishment or your anger. Thank you that for the children of God, you have nothing but love and grace and help and that you are our good Father who does good in our lives. We pray for those who are here this morning who may be suffering. We pray for those who are struggling with whether or not you are good. We pray that you would strengthen them in their weakness. We pray that you would give them endurance We pray that you would help them to learn whatever it is that they need to learn through whatever this trial is. And we pray that you would comfort them with your presence, with your acceptance, with your fatherly love. This passage says this so clearly, Father. And we just thank you for that. Praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.